I invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel 1. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 16 today. Your pastor is, for better or for worse, an expositional preacher. That means that I don't regularly wander into topics, but rather I walk through the Bible and let the topics come up as they come up. Now, sometimes this can lead to topics that are not addressed often, even if they are of great practical significance and importance to daily Christian life. There are things that you and I deal with every day that aren't explicitly addressed from this pulpit often, even though we as a church stand strongly in our position upon them particularly those who might listen on the internet, who aren't a part of our church, who uh, can't um, benefit from the discipleship and the times of fellowship one with another, um, might perceive in their listening a dearth of practical topics. Things on a regular basis. I've come to the conclusion that, at least in my mind, uh, the fact that we don't regularly address perhaps more practical topics is far less detrimental than the alternative where I get up every week and preach on what I think the church needs to hear about regarding life and regarding culture and in doing so fail to teach you huge portions of the Bible that are perhaps not what we would call practical and applicable to daily life. And in doing so, we lose an essential aspect of the why of what we do on a daily basis. See, there is what we do, what, and then there's the why of what we do. And the what is important, but the why is essential. And if we get so caught up on the what that we don't learn the why, then all we do is fall into legalism. And here's the thing about practical, practical Christian living doing what is right in God's eyes on a daily basis. It's not always just about obeying the explicit commands of God. The things we do and we don't do in life aren't simply because of of all of the explicit commands that God gives. Oftentimes, there's another layer that needs to be added in order for us to come to the place where we're comfortable, the place where we um, live as believers. And there are three levels of identification and obedience that we have in the Christian life. And the very foundational level are indeed those commands of Scripture. The thou shalt and the thou shalt nots, things which God explicitly tells us to do and not to do. And there's no wiggle room here. God says do it. God says don't do it. We do it or we don't do it. If we do what he says not to do or don't do what he says to do, then we are in sin. But then we build upon those principle or those precepts or those commands principles, templates, general guidelines that inform our understanding of the morality of the things which are in the world around us. And it's our job to interpret these principles into our daily lives through standards. In other words, while the Bible doesn't give us explicit commands concerning, say, what movies to watch, since the Bible was written 2,000 years ago, well before television or movies or anything of the sort, The principles of God's word give us the template by which we are able to judge whether or not we should spend our time and our money on a particular movie or allow the things which are in a particular movie to get into our hearts through our eyes and through our ears. 
And so even though there's no thou shalts and thou shalt nots about movies, now there are about certain things um, that would relate to movies, such as sexuality and perversity and such. We then add on to that a layer of principle, whereby in principle we see things about God's character and God's expectations that might be offended in movies in ways that God's precepts would not. And then finally, we take the precepts or the commands of God's word and the principles of God's word, and we form through the commands and through the principles standards which apply to ourselves as individuals or as families or as a church. And we live our lives before God in these standards in order to avoid breaking the commands or offending the principles of God's word. These standards will be different for each person, but will often look very similar among people of like faith and practice. So while the laws, we would say, of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy are fulfilled in Christ and not the obligation of believers today, while the laws of the Old Testament and the expectations that we saw of God upon Israel are not um, the obligation of believers today, the character of God in the Old Testament, the principles of his character are unchanging in their validity and unchanging in their necessity for our lives. And as we walk through the Bible, it is the principles of God's character that shine a light upon God's expectations for us. And what I'm going to do today through 1 Samuel chapter 1 verses 12 through 16 is use that as a bit of a launching point. And we're going to discuss the concept of commands and principles and standards through this passage of Scripture to understand how God's Word should relate to our lives in the topic or through the topic of alcohol consumption. It's a topic that is hotly contested among Christian circles today, uh, particularly in evangelical circles, as to whether or not alcohol consumption is okay and to what degree and those sorts of things. And so we're going to talk through commands or precepts, principles, and standards, and we're going to use this topic of alcohol as an example. And we're going to do so because in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we see a principle espoused, not a command, but a principle espoused about alcohol that we, we can understand throughout Scripture that will give us insight into how we ought to see alcohol today as believers. And we begin with the precept, the command, the strongest foundation, the clear commands of God's word as it relates to alcohol. Many of you are familiar with this clear command. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 says, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. The explicit command is very clear. When a person's mental faculties are, by choice, without legitimate cause, overridden by a foreign substance, so that his regular patterns of thinking and perception are overruled and inhibited, he has violated the command of Scripture to refrain from drunkenness. May I say that again? When a person's mental faculties are, by choice and without legitimate cause, overridden by a foreign substance, so that his regular patterns of thinking and perception are overruled and inhibited, he has violated the clear command of Scripture to refrain from drunkenness. Now, this is obvious, and it is relatively uncontested in Christian circles, although oftentimes not applied in the broad way that God's Word would, would expect it 
this doesn't just apply to alcohol, it applies to any substance that we would knowingly, willfully, and regularly put into our body that changes our mental state. But most Christians, as far as alcohol is concerned, understand and agree. It is a sin to get drunk. But far too many Christians think that this is where their obligation to God stops. That if there's no explicit command against something in the Bible, then they are free to do it. And if you think this way, I say this with all um, humility and respect, you, you are fooling yourself. Now stick with me here. Some of you may be at this point ready to check out on me. Please don't. Hear me out. Listen to me through to the end. And then judge accordingly. We now come to that second layer. We've seen the command of Scripture, don't get drunk. Let's talk about principles for a moment. Principles are concepts in Scripture that apply to various aspects of life and godliness that, when seen in the context of an activity, such as drinking alcohol, make it clear that its consumption, the consumption of alcohol, puts us in a place that we as believers regularly ought not be. And this is where we will step into our passage today. But let me just say this. I'm going to say it at the beginning and I'm going to say it at the end. Though I do state right here and right now that alcohol puts us in a place where we ought not be. This is a principle. It's not a precept. And the difference is that when you are, if you get drunk, you offend God's command. There's no way around that. If you get drunk, you offend God's command. Because drunkenness is a uh, is a, an offense to the command of Scripture. But you can consume alcohol in a way that does not violate the principle. So I'm going to lay down the principle. And what we are going to see through the principle is that by and large, particularly in American culture, there is no excuse for a believer to consume alcohol. But by that same token... There are ways in which a believer can consume alcohol without violating the principle. We'll come back to that at the end. So let's pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 11. You're there for context. We'll pick up, excuse me, chapter 1. For context, we'll pick up in verse 11 and we'll read through verse 16. And she vowed a vow, that's Hannah, and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. And it shall come to pass, as, and it came to pass, excuse me, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard, therefore Eli thought she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am... A woman of sorrowful spirit, I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. We pick up in verse 12. Following Hannah's vow to God concerning a son, she continued to silently pray unto the Lord with great sorrow and great passion, such that while she was indeed praying silently, her lips could be seen moving with the thoughts of her heart. Now, we know from last time, Eli was the high priest, and he was sitting in the corner of the tabernacle, and he noticed her lips moving, but no words were being said, and he thought Hannah was drunk. 
Perhaps you, and I know I have at times, been in in such a place of sorrow or passion or vehemence with the Lord that I have uh, been on my knees and silently praying and my lips have been moving. And for some, this is a very common thing. Eli saw this, and however, he didn't understand the context. And he thought that she was drunk. Now, this, this is not inherently surprising, as that is one of those telltale signs of uh, one who is deeply drunk, a very drunk, uh, incoherent babbling, muttering under one's breath. This is mentioned in Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 through 30, as one of those woes of the drunkard. He, uh, the Psalm, uh, the um, Proverbs writer says, Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Here it is, who hath babbling, who hath wounds without cause, who hath redness of eyes, they that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. They, descriptions of a drunkard, woe, sorrow, uh, argumentative contentions, babbling. Eli thought that he had identified this characteristic of drunkenness in Hannah. However, he was incorrect, and we see that as we continue through the passage. Eli speaks to her in verse 14, and he rebukes her for her drunkenness, commanding her to put away the wine from her. In short, he sternly tells her that she needs to sober up. And Hannah is quick to correct this misunderstanding. In verse 15, she says, No, my lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. She tells him that she is not drunk, but rather a woman who is very sorrowful, and in the vehemence of her sorrow, she has poured out her soul before the Lord. Now, Eli would have certainly immediately recognized through Hannah's response her lucidity and understood her not to be drunk. She she didn't speak like a drunkard. She, she was very much in her sound mind. So he would have immediately recognized that, and he would have been fine with the situation. But she continues, Hannah continues, And it's in verse 16 that we see this principle espoused about alcohol. She says in verse 16, Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. And what we see is a presentation of a biblical principle concerning her mindset and Eli's mindset as it pertained to alcohol consumption, specifically drunkenness. Hannah equates Eli's perception of her being drunk here with her being a daughter of Belial. The word Belial in in the Hebrew literally means without profit or worthless. But the implication of being a daughter of Belial is far more severe than simply calling her a worthless woman. The term Belial was used by God throughout the Bible to describe those who had completely lost their moral compass in some aspect of life. And this is important, see, because while most of the evangelical world has such a deep loyalty to and such a dependence upon secular culture that they really have lost any biblical objectivity as it relates to identifying what is sin and what is not sin, it is important for us to see that there is nothing in alcohol not just its drunk, not just drunkenness, but in its consumption, that points to anything virtuous or right in Scripture. And we'll come back to that a little bit. Coming back to this concept of Belial, however, we see several times where Belial is used in the Scriptures. One of them is in Deuteronomy chapter thirteen, verse thirteen. 
Certain men, the children of Belial, it says, are gone out from among you and have withdrawn the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which ye have not known. God uses the word Belial in Deuteronomy 13.13 to describe men who would seek to turn the hearts of God's people away from God into serving idols. That's a description of a man of Belial. In that case, he had lost his moral compass as it pertained to idolatry. In Judges chapter 19, verse 22, we see it mentioned again. It says this, Now as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, certain sons of Belial, beset the house round about, and beat at the door, and spake to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring forth the man that came into thine house, that we may know him. In Judges 19.22, the Bible uses the idea of Belial to speak of men who have lost their moral compass as it refers to sexuality. They were sodomites. And God speaks of sodomites as sons of Belial, those who had lost their moral compass as it pertains to sexuality. The term is used several other times in Scripture. It's used of a man who has corrupted two men, in fact. We'll see them next uh, in, in a... a several weeks from now, in First Samuel 2, uh, of uh, pertaining to men who have corrupted God's priesthood. We see it spoken of pertaining to men who have rejected God's anointed king. Also of men who accuse others of wrongdoing falsely, who take bribes to falsely accuse men. All of them spoken of as men of Belial. Two times in the book of Samuel, Belial is used as it pertains unto a drunkard. Here in 1 Samuel 1, and then again in 1 Samuel 25, describing the man of Belial named Nabal. And as we consider these uses, as we trace this word, we see that the term Belial is used to describe those who are actively engaged in something of moral disrepute. Something that strips a man or a woman of his ability to function, or to be of use to God or to others, something that makes them worthless before God. And it's interesting to note that this Hebrew word, Belial, is also used one time in the New Testament, and it's used in a very um, appropriate context for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is warning Christians against forming intimate ties with the world around them, and he says this in verses 14 through 18. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he, uh, hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them, and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. We often see these verses used in the context of a believer marrying an unbeliever. The idea of an unequal yoking of a, of a marry, of a believer with an unbeliever in marriage. And that is indeed true. But in reality, the context of the passage is much, much broader than that. Paul is speaking of separation. About a believer pairing himself in an intimate way with the principles, ideologies, and activities of the unbelieving world around him. That you, as a servant of Christ, have no business being in intimate fellowship with the things of the world. Now, in this passage, Paul calls these things Belial, infidelity, idolatry, darkness, 
unrighteousness. We might liken this idea to the feeling that you get when you see a politician travel to a country, say, where their leader is a brutal dictator, a man who oppresses his people and watches with apathy as they die or as they live in poverty, and you see the politician from a freedom-loving country embrace that leader, treat him as a brother, and as you do so, you wonder, what business does a man who claims to love liberty, who claims to love peace, have being so kind, so friendly, so personable with a man who hates liberty and oppresses his people? There's something wrong there. There's an imbalance. It's a betrayal of principles. It's not right. And Paul asks the same thing of us here in 1 Corinthians 6. What business do you as a born-again believer have embracing the things of this world? You say that God is your king and his word is truth and then you invite sin into your home as if there's nothing wrong. And what Paul is teaching about here is separation. The concept that there are things in this world that the believer should have no part of because they are unclean and they have no virtue. I was talking to a woman several years ago now, and she asked me, uh, what's the difference between an evangelical and a fundamentalist? You call yourselves fundamentalists, and we've always lived in the evangelical world. Well, what's the difference? And I looked at her, and I told her, well, simply put, if I were to, to make it simple for you, the difference is separation. That fundamentalists believe that we need to come out from among the world. And there's a danger there. We know that that many fundamentalists have gone so far as to believe that coming out of the world means having no interaction with the world. And when we do that, we lose our ability to touch the world, to reach the world. We must never get so far from the world in proximity that we cannot reach the world. We are to be unspoiled from the world. We are to live lives of distinction while we are in the midst of the world. We are not to separate from the presence of the world, but simply from the principles of the world. And so let's expand our horizons as we consider what drunkenness is, whether or not the substance that leads to drunkenness is appropriate in the life of a believer. Because remember, the command, the Belial, is that a person gets drunk. But consider with me as we continue God's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-12. through 1 Corinthians now, leaving 2 Corinthians 6, going to 1 Corinthians 6, and Paul says this, Know ye not that, uh, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any." We spoke at length on this topic in our Lawful But Not Expedient series, I believe it was last February, uh, which focused upon the principles of spirit-filled living presented in 1 Corinthians 6 and in 1 Corinthians 10, around that idea of all things being lawful, but all things not being expedient. And what Paul teaches here is that there are certain activities and characteristics that define the unregenerate. That list is given, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, that would be uh, sodomites, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. 
These men are men, uh, these people are exhibiting the characteristics of those that define the unregenerate. Now, Paul is not saying here that if you and I struggle with one of these sins, that we are not a believer. Paul is speaking of, of those who are defined by that sin. See, you and I are not defined by any sin, regardless of whether or not we do that sin. We are defined in Christ. Colossians tells us we are complete in Him, that being Christ. So, when God looks at us, He does not see our sin, He sees Christ. But that doesn't mean that you can't commit these sins. And Paul's warning in this passage is that by committing these sins... You are not associating yourselves with the things of God, but rather with the things of this world, with the things of Belial, namely with those things presented in 1 John 2.16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Paul says in verse 12 that even if something is lawful in Christ, in other words, even if it's not a sin to drink in our context, that doesn't mean under any circumstances that this action is worthy of your time or your money or your activity. Do you understand? Do you see where I'm going with this? It's wrong to be drunk. But just because alcohol is inherently lawful does not mean it's expedient. Does not mean it's right. Does not mean it pleases God, even if it's not inherently sinful. Doesn't mean it's God's best for you. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-5 through five says this, If ye then be risen with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. As believers, we are freed from the power of sin and we are freed from the penalty of sin. And the scriptures declare that this freedom has taken place in us or did take place in us the moment you accepted Christ as your Savior. The moment you accepted Christ as your Savior, you died with Christ and you were rose again, risen again with Him. That is the symbolic nature of uh, why we baptize. To symbolize publicly and externally what God has already done in our heart. That we died, we were buried with Him, and now we are raised to walk in newness of life. Our memory review for today, 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And Paul described it this way in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. I mentioned it already. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The expectation is that you would not do the things in your Christian life that the world does. Pursue the pleasures that the world pursues. And if you are risen with Christ, then why would you place your affection on the things of this world? Do you see the pattern that we're forming? Drunkenness is sin. Drunkenness is a vice of the world. It is something the world loves. It is something the world pursues. As a believer, you have no business pursuing those things that define what the world pursues. Your pursuits are to be heavenly in focus. Alcohol, as it relates to bodily consumption, 
serves very few purposes and by and large the primary purpose of alcohol for bodily consumption, I'm not talking about putting alcohol in a wound, I'm not talking about those sorts of things, but by and large the purpose of alcohol consumption is to alter one's mental, emotional, physical state. So as believers, do we really have any business on a regular basis, in principle, consuming it? Now we could walk from passage to passage and see the legacy of alcohol in the Bible. Noah got drunk and was found by his children laying shamefully naked in his tent. Lot's daughters got him drunk so that they could lay with him and perpetuate his seed dishonestly and dishonorably. Those who separated themselves unto God in the Old Testament, the Nazarites, a part of their vow was that they could come, they could not come anywhere near alcohol. Priests were not allowed to consume any alcohol before they went into the temple to perform their duties. Do you see the pattern? It's mentioned as well in Proverbs 31, 4 and 5. Lemuel's mother told her this. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. A man of responsibility has no business doing anything that could compromise his ability to make sound judgments, is what she said. And one of those things is drinking. Consider with me one more passage as we close, if you would. We'll talk to a couple more verses, but one more main passage. First Thessalonians chapter 5, a passage that's regularly taken out of context, will attempt to do it justice today. First Thessalonians 5, verses 21 and 22 say, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. That word to prove means to test, to approve. Paul says here that as believers, we are literally to put to test everything in our lives in order to approve it or disapprove it for our lives. Paul tells us that as we do so, the only things that we ought to retain in our lives are those things that are good, a word which literally means beautiful or by extension has the idea of that which is worthy of your time, that which is valuable, that which is virtuous. And so we hold fast to the virtue as we test everything for virtue. And then Paul, in verse 22, gives us a more specific help to avoid those things which we don't even need to prove, we don't even need to debate. Things that are inherently not worthy, things that are inherently not worthy of holding fast. And these are things which are by their very reputation evil or wrong or sinful. Things which, by their very reputation, have no virtue in them. Now, please, if you would with me in American culture, consider the testimony of alcohol. You must be 21 to consume because even a godless society reckons that under this age, a person does not have enough responsibility to handle themselves safely or to be safe around others. Commercials about alcohol focus on the fun of drinking, but we know that this isn't the reputation of alcohol. It lowers your inhibitions, lowers your ability to make sound judgments. If it gets out of control, alcohol turns into drunkenness, and then we have a whole new set of problems. 
You go into hospitals, you ask the nurses and doctors about alcohol. You go to a police station, you ask the officers about alcohol. You're not going to hear positive things. And I ask you, as a reasonable believer, as far as regular, consistent, or social consumption of alcohol goes, is there any way that you can perform that and it be associated with that which is virtuous? Do we have any business being a part of alcohol? Will it help or hinder our testimony for Christ? Will it bring any glory to God? 1 Corinthians 10.23, Paul said it again as he did in 1 Corinthians 6, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Are you going to edify the other believers with that? Paul would go on just a few verses later to say in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Is that drink going to glorify God? Are people that see you drinking that drink going to associate that with something virtuous? Is it an area under any reckoning of Christian life, testimony, and purpose that is worthy of your time or your money or your activity? Eli and Hannah equated drunkenness with worthless living, with Belial, and the testimony of all scriptures reveal how God feels about it as well. And as believers, this is one of those areas that's actually really easy for us. Not saying it's easy for you to avoid alcohol if you've had problems with it in the past, but what I'm saying is uh, alcohol consumption is an area where we can very clearly and very distinctly separate ourselves from the world around us. There are so many ways that it's hard to separate from the world around us. It's hard to show our distinction. We live in a fairly Christianized culture, even though most of the culture has rejected that, that idea. It certainly has rejected Christ. But we still live in a fairly Christianized culture, a culture that still has a fairly decent morals. People are still aghast when someone runs a red light. People are, are still, uh, they still struggle with um, those who blatantly and flippantly disobey the law in ways that in other countries they just don't, they don't have that kind of a mindset. And yet for all that, it can be very difficult sometimes for us to, to show our distinction, to show that we are living in the light of God's word. And this is one of those areas where it's easy. Where someone asks us about alcohol and we say no thank you and we don't just say it's a personal decision. We say because God wouldn't be pleased. We ought not yield those differences so easily. And so as we close, we come back to this idea of precepts, of commands, of principles, and of standards. In the life of a Christian, the standards that we put in place for us and for our families and for our church are there to protect us from actions that would violate God's commands or that would violate God's principles. Now, why is it that drunkenness is where God places the command and not simply alcohol? Well, because the command for drunkenness cannot be, cannot be you can't get drunk without violating God's command and without sinning against God. However, purposefully that is, however, that being said, there are times where you can consume alcohol without violating all of these principles that we've talked about of virtue and of testimony and of, and of obedience and of, of righteousness. 
And this is where things tend to get fuzzy, and that's why the evangelical world rests where they do, and they just they don't understand the concept of precepts and principles. The evangelical world says, now I can drink as long as I don't get drunk, but that's not the case. We've seen today that there is nothing virtuous in particularly American society. But imagine the missionary. Imagine the missionary who goes to a place where um, the culture is different. And they are to be honored. And a part of that honor is an alcoholic beverage of some sort. And to not partake would be excessively offensive. Can he drink alcohol without offending all of these principles, the biblical principles of, of things that uh, glorify God, of testimony, of appearance of evil? Absolutely he can. What about the man who goes to a country where the water is not clean? And so they use alcohol, some like in biblical days, very minor uh, amount of alcohol, such as the wine of the biblical days, a very watered-down concept, in order to disinfect the water, the fluids, so that they can drink them. That wouldn't violate the principles of God's Word. Suppose I get sick and I decide to take some NyQuil. That doesn't violate the principles of God's Word. No one's going to look at me and uh, say I have a poor testimony any more than they're going to say you have a poor testimony because you uh, took Vicodin after a surgery. You're altering your mental state. The principle of God's Word says that we ought not to do that. However, in times such as after a surgery or whatever the case may be, uh, we're not violating God's principle. We're not becoming a bad testimony because we're uh, partaking in pain pills. However, if we allow ourselves to become addicted to them and we start taking them regularly and we're regularly in a state of altered testimony, it becomes sin, does it not? This is what we're talking about. That God doesn't give us the command to never drink alcohol because if He did, then He would put us in a box that would be very difficult to live in. But, the principles of God's Word form a framework around which we can clearly see the times where alcohol consumption would be appropriate and alcohol consumption would simply be so that we may have to, to heap upon our lust, sinful, for our own reasons, to be like the world, to pursue the world, to do what the world does, to love what the world loves, which is offending the principles of God's Word clearly. And so we cannot, we must not, take the principles of God's Word and put them on precept level because then we begin to elevate our standards and our principles to commands and we become legalists. But at the same time, we cannot simply ignore the principles of God's Word about testimony and obedience because we don't see a command. As it pertains, and, and then standards. Standards are simply me knowing what I can handle and knowing who I am and setting up boundaries in my life so that I don't get drunk or so that I don't offend the principles of God's word as it relates to testimony. If that means I can never take a drop of alcohol, then I won't. If it doesn't mean that, well, then you're going to set that standard for yourself. We've received the command. We've seen the principles. Now it's up to you to set a standard. A standard for your life. May I suggest a standard? 
Never touch the stuff. Ever. Then you'll never be at risk of offending God's word. In our culture, there is no reason you don't need to consume alcohol. There are alternatives for pain. There are alternatives for sleep. You don't need it. Don't go down that path. That's my recommendation. Maybe as you've heard this message today, you've been more enlightened perhaps by the concept of commands and principles and standards than you have even by our speaking about alcohol specifically. Maybe you've been thinking about the television shows you watch or the things that you wear or the music you listen to or the places you go or the people you hang out with. And you've recognized that even if you have not disobeyed any explicit command of Scripture, that you have been offending God's principles of separation. Maybe you need to get some of those things right today. You need to start setting up godly standards based upon the principles and commands of God's Word. It's our job to look into God's Word, to know who God is and to know what God expects. And then carry those commands and carry those principles over into your life and set up strong standards that will protect you and your family from becoming unequally yoked to the world in any context of life. Would you ask the Holy Spirit to search you, search your actions, search your heart, search your motives? And would you come to a place where you will be willing to set up good standards in your life for the glory of God? Let's pray together.